The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and participants during this episode are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Physicians, the editors of Annals of Internal Medicine, or the institutions that the speakers are affiliated with unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on-call. I've often had symptoms for months before someone has really thought about even testing for the diagnosis. So they're more frequent, and there's often a tremendous delay in diagnoses. And those are the two problems we really wanted to focus on with this piece. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call we discuss an article titled Endemic Mycoses, Underdiagnosed and Underreported. Our guest is the first author of the paper, Dr. George Thompson III. Dr. Thompson is infectious disease specialist, a professor at UC Davis with a particular interest in coccidiomycoses. We hope you learn a lot about the underdiagnosis of endemic mycoses from this podcast. George, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Your beautiful piece on the problem of uh, endemic mycoses really struck home, as I've had quite a few of those patients over the years. I'd love for you to sort of outline the problem, why you wrote this, and what you see as uh, someone who really is interested in uh, fungal infections. Oh, Absolutely. That paper was really focused on three of the endemic mycoses, coccidiomycosis, histoplasma, and blastomyces. And what we've really seen with all three of those infections is their regions uh, where they exist are expanding. They're increasingly identified outside of their their so-called endemic regions. And, And that fact complicated with the fact that these typically present as pneumonia. And when they come to our clinic, they've often had symptoms for months before someone has really thought about even testing for the diagnosis. So they're more frequent and there's often a tremendous delay in diagnoses. And those are the two problems we really wanted to focus on with this piece. I assume that the delay in diagnosis leads to more widespread infections, more difficulty treating, and uh, much more problems for the patient during that period of time where they're not getting better and they don't know what's going on. Yeah, I think the patients are uniformly frustrated by that. You know, they, they, they continue to have symptoms and they're prescribed sort of sequential antibiotics. You know, the first course of antibiotics doesn't improve their symptoms. They return to their primary care doctor, typically get a second course of antibiotics. So that, you know, certainly in this era of antimicrobial stewardship is a big problem. It exposes patients to antibiotics they, they don't need. They're not going to help them and they don't get better. So, you know, with, and physicians move around, right? So, so you know, 40% of physicians do not practice in, in the state that they did their training in. So, so you know, we, we we're taught these diseases are exotic and rare in medical school, sort of in the context they're taught, but they're, they're not, they're really common. You know, in the Central Valley of California, fourth of all cases of community-acquired pneumonia are actually from coxie. And then the CDC has some similar data for histoplasma, 
that about 8% of cap cases in, in East Texas are actually from histoplasma. So I think that's just the tip of the iceberg and we're gonna understand this a lot better over the next 10 years, but these are really common infections uh, and they're in new areas. Well, let's start out with one of my favorite uh, complaints and that's the phrase community acquired pneumonia. Back in the seventies when I was training, we didn't have that phrase. It was pneumonia, what's causing it? Community acquired pneumonia has become a catch-all for someone who comes in to the emergency department and has something wrong with their chest x-ray. And one of the things that I talk about a lot is what is the illness script and what's the problem representation. And the illness script for community-acquired pneumonia, if it's due to the normal viruses or bacteria, is a very short course, mm-hmm. give them antibiotics, and they're better within a day or two. So is part of the problem just when someone is labeled as community-acquired pneumonia, say, does it fit? Uh, we had a patient admitted to my service uh, last week who had been sick for two weeks. Mm. He had a little smidgen on, of something on his chest X-ray, and the overnight team treated him as if he had community-acquired pneumonia. And I, he didn't have a fever. He didn't have a white count. He did a productive cough, but he had COPD. I said, we can treat him for acute bronchitis, but he doesn't have pneumonia. Could you expand on that concept of we know what community-acquired pneumonia is, and if it's not that, then we, we should get rid of that label, even if someone has already put it on. Yeah, that's, that's really a great point, is patients get kind of pigeonholed in this, you know, CAP, community-acquired pneumonia diagnosis, and then they're kind of stuck there. You know, people don't sort of reevaluate, is this the correct diagnosis? That's compounded a bit by the current ATS-IDSA guidelines for community-acquired pneumonia, Despite how common these endemic mycoses are, they don't comment really about patients with symptoms more than a week or two to to consider testing for an endemic mycosis or start over. They probably don't have CAP, right? They have an alternative explanation for their symptoms. And I think that's what you were alluding to is is you have to think of these diseases and and sort of kick that pigeonholed illness script out and and, and sort of reevaluate and start back over with their diagnostic workup. So I think you've already answered what was really going to be my next question. How big of a problem is this? It sounds like in the Central Valley of California, it occurs. And my guess is not only are 20% due to coccidio, but there's another large percent that is not community-acquired pneumonia, and we don't know what they're due to. And sometimes it's tuberculosis, Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's brand new uh, pneumocystis, and sometimes it's just heart failure. And I'm sure there are more things that you could name. You, you obviously, as an infectious disease specialist, see, see the cases that, that uh, go on and on. But just as, as you look at uh, what's been happening over the last 10 years, is this increasing as a problem? And is this the most important problem from the endemic mycoses? And then maybe we can talk about some of the other presentations. Yeah, I think that the the lack of um, awareness and, and testing practices, you know, we need better education of physicians and uh, practitioners and patients alike. You know, a lot of places that the patient is going to be the one that says, hey, I was reading about, you know, chronic pulmonary symptoms, and I think I might have valley fever. So, so we have tried to approach this from education of, of both sides, the practitioners and the patients, just to get people tested, because that's, again, the, the major problem is people just don't think of the diagnosis to get them tested. And then we can get them off antibiotics, put them on antifungals, get them better uh, much more quickly. So I think that's the biggest problem in the field right now is just awareness. These are not that unusual and that uncommon. We are increasingly taking care of immunocompromised patients. You know, we've had tremendous advances in cancer care and uh, rheumatologic care with all these anti-TNF blockers, et cetera. 
And those are patients that get really bad histoplasma. Uh, they get really bad coxie, get bad blastomyces. So, so being able to test and just think through these different infections is, is just really key for seeing these patients from, from these endemic regions. Anyone who works in an academic medical center has seen x-rays of people who come in. Where I live in Alabama, we see a lot of histo. Uh, mm-hmm. We see some blasto. We only get coccidia if someone has been out to the West Coast. But we think about, we might be good at thinking about it when we have a pulmonary infection, but there are other presentations of these mycoses. And maybe you could go over some of the, some of the triggers that make you think we need to test for that. There are definitely some other syndromes that I think are common enough that internists really need to know those. I think that the, the most well-known of those three endemic mycoses would be disseminated histoplasma in a patient with HIV or AIDS. Um, you know, those patients come in very sick, often pancytopenic, and appear septic, uh, often end up in the ICU and need, you know, a course of amphotericin. And, and you know, you're not going to grow histoplasma in their blood cultures for probably two or three weeks, but you can get a buffy coat of their, of their blood and see histoplasma directly on there and, and make the diagnosis the same day they come in. So I think as far as severe manifestations of these, that one for histo is probably the most frequent and the most common on boards, mm-hmm. uh, which I think people always care the most about, right? What's on my boards? Uh, the second mo- most common and, and the biggest mistake is for patients with meningitis. So patients with chronic headache, and again, this is a subacute meningitis. This is not meningococcal meningitis. They're going to have headache and neurologic symptoms for weeks, um, sometimes even months that wax and wane. Uh, and if they've been to the endemic region, you know, meningitis is really something to think about. And then the last one is blasto, which is probably the least common of those three, but blasto has this predilection for the genitourinary system and the skin. So unusual lesions or, uh, you know, genitourinary symptoms, and those are, those are unusual. So they're going to have a delay in their diagnosis just because they're a bit more obscure, but that's probably the most common blasto presentation. So those are the three I think internists really need to know about. And then sometimes and I've seen histo present as a fever of unknown origin. I've seen mm-hmm. liver complications. I've seen GI complications. One of the things that I say, and tell me if I'm wrong, is that if TB enters your differential, histo enters your differential. Yeah, that, that's probably a really good rule of thumb. It, it's very difficult to sell tuberculosis apart from some of these endemic mycoses on initial presentation. They have you know, similar overlapping risk factors. So, so I think that, yeah, granulomatous disease, you know, tuberculosis, mycobacteria, and endemic fungi. What I love about your ideas piece is you actually have some suggestions. So I'd like you to go over your suggestions of what we should do as physicians and what we should do through organized medicine and, and medical education so that perhaps we can diagnose these sooner because the sooner you diagnose it, the easier it is to treat. That's true for every infection that I know of. I mean, we tend to sort of avoid diagnoses that take a long time to make. So if, if some of these you know, diagnostic tests are more readily available, you know, don't take seven days to come back. I think that will help us tremendously. So we do really make a call for rapid diagnostics. The other big limitation is trying to fully grasp how have these infections moved or been identified in these new locations. So it's really helpful to have mandatory reporting. Not all states have mandatory reporting for the endemic mycoses. For example, we know there's a a fair amount of coxie in Texas, but we don't know how much. It's It's not reported to the state. And in other states, you know, we have no idea how much of some of these infections there are as this is not a reportable disease. Yeah, let, um, me just, let, let me just, sure. let, let, I want to have a conversation about that because uh, 
one of our uh, infectious disease specialists at uh, UAB, who's a friend of yours, Pete Pappas, when you present him a case, he wants to know where in Alabama they live, because knowing the part of Alabama, if it might be a fungal infection, changes what those infections are. And what I hear you saying is that our maps may not be very accurate right now, and then they may be changing. Could you just talk about that a little bit? Because I think that's really important. The maps, you know, are, are basically were, were skin tests done in the 1950s for military recruits. And, and at that time, you could do that, that study because, you know, our patients didn't move around quite as much as they do today. We could not repeat that study today. Our patients have just <laughs> been all over the country often. So I do think the maps are dated. We unfortunately are living in this area where there's clear environmental changes. You know, the temperatures are higher. Uh, that's going to change soil characteristics. Um, the organisms are going to be able to kind of move around from their old regions. And it's a little bit unclear if they're newly in those locations or if they're just newly discovered in those locations as sort of populations shift and, mm -hmm. you know, um, population density changes. So more people living in a certain region, we're going to start seeing this tip of the iceberg phenomenon and, and have patients with those infections. So, and for example, we, we know there's coxie in Washington state and using molecular clocks in those organisms, it's been there for thousands of years. So I think we've just newly discovered it. So, you know, maybe we crowdsource soil samples from around the country to, to look at these by PCR. There's, there's lots of different things we could do, but the old maps need to be updated. And I think there's a lot of groups working on that right now. Mandatory reporting was the next thing. We're, what else might we do? So mandatory reporting, and that's going to be really driven by CDC and public health efforts. Really, you know, if, if you've got a patient with an endemic mycosis, it's got to be reported to the state so it can be captured in these, these national databases and really look at the incidents over time to see the, the true numbers of patients with the infection and also where are they being diagnosed, where, where are these infections occurring. So, so that's really what we would propose for that from a public health standpoint. And you had a couple more recommendations, I think. Yeah. So the last, I think, major one, it would be, really be, you know, these are preventable diseases with a vaccine. There have been some early vaccine efforts. Uh, you know, there's a number of different candidates that have been explored. I think mRNA technology has, has been a tremendous advance. It's a bit of a plug and play platform that we can, you know, very quickly make large amounts of vaccine. And these endemic mycoses share enough of their genetics that we might be able to make a pan-endemic vaccine. And if it works for all of the endemics, that's, that's probably going to get a little bit more attention from pharma, right? Since it's got a bigger market share, uh, rather than just a vaccine for a specific smaller regional population. Okay, so let, let's go ahead and summarize this wonderful conversation, because I think what you've done is remind all of us and, and all of our listeners that we should not forget these endemic fungi. So give me your, your summary of what you want the practicing primary care internist and the hospitalist to always be thinking about. I think the take-home point from this is, is really if, if you see a patient that you think has community-acquired pneumonia and they have not responded to their first course of antibiotics, that's probably a patient that really needs uh, a more extensive social history because, you know, we've, we've certainly talked about endemic mycoses, but things like Q fever come up, chlamydiophila, you know, those are other infections that may have been missed with the initial community-acquired pneumonia regimen. So uh, starting over, taking a full history, reconsidering, is this bacterial? Could this be fungal? Could this be pneumocystis? So kind of starting over for those patients is really the biggest take-home message. And we are hoping that the next round of community-acquired pneumonia guidelines will, will discuss those, those patients and, and that algorithm will be added. 
George, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast. I think that uh, this is a very, very important conversation to make us better diagnosticians. And if we're better diagnosticians, we're better therapeuticians. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This uh, very interesting discussion focused on uh, the underdiagnosis of endemic mycoses. This most often occurs when patients present with pulmonary symptoms. And as we discussed, many of these patients are originally diagnosed as community-acquired pneumonia. Sometimes they're treated more than once, which is almost never necessary for true community-acquired pneumonia. What Dr. Thompson did was remind us that with longer courses or lack of response to treatment, we need to think about histo, blasto, and coccidiomycoses as possible causes for these pulmonary syndromes. We also discussed some possible solutions to the lack of current knowledge about the uh, epidemiology of these fungi. We hope that this podcast will help you think more deeply about this possibility in your patients who don't have community-acquired pneumonia. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on-call.